Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, a new podcast which aims to dig deeper into the stories and trends shaping the world's most exciting region. My name is Andrew People, and along with my colleagues Vincent Nee and Rebecca Bailey, we'll be calling in experts from across the globe for a weekly discussion of the biggest news in countries from India to China to Japan and beyond, aiming to explain the forces that lie behind the headlines. So we're going to start this week with a look at the rise of Asia's tech industry, the sector that's already proved a running sore in the US and China's ongoing trade talks. Why has it been so important for China to become a global tech superpower? How far along the road is it towards achieving this dream? And how are other Asian countries responding to the rise of China tech? Well, to discuss these and other questions, I'm joined now by Jing Su. Uh, Jing is a professor of modern Chinese studies at Yale University and is joining us from New York today. Uh, She's currently working on a book on China's entry into the IT era. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us today, Jing. If I could ask, first of all, just that question then. I mean, why, in your view, has it been so important really over the last 40, 50 years for China to see itself as a leading technological power in the world? Uh, I think that is actually, uh, most people might not think this is a loaded question, but it really is. And partly because China has been envisioning this and planning this uh, even before the past 40, 50 years. Um, And oddly enough, because we're in the context of the current trade war between China and the U.S., um, this actually has quite a bit of origin. Already in the late 1800s, um, 1895, there was a theory of economic nationalism in China. In fact, that's the first time that the, the phrase trade war in Chinese, Shangzhen, actually appeared. Mm. And already back then, they had very consciously thought that it was incredibly important for China to understand that modern warfare and engage with the West was not just going to be about soldiers, troops, and wars. That was actually going to be about economics, control of the resources, and tariffs. Now, it's important to note that China actually did not have the power to impose tariffs on imports until 1923. And this was the result of a series of what we know as unequal treaties. And so I think throughout the 20th century, it had always thought that the way to go was to precisely strengthen itself economically, to become independent, and to somehow acquire the science technology of the West. And those unequal and treaties then, were, mm, were with the likes of the UK and the US, the, the great Opium powers War, exactly. at the time. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, I think the UK started uh, was uh, led the way, but then it was also agreed that those conditions, once you grant, once China granted to one Western nation, it had to grant the same condition to all. So it's really kind of an onslaught of conditions and treaties that were enforced that were basically uh, irreversible at the time. So I think you know when we think of uh, communist China, who's when we think of the radical intensification of this process. Um, Very early on, 1956, there was the first very important 12-year plan um, to basically strengthen China in the area of science technology. Uh, Several areas were identified, um, computer science, um, electronics, automation. All these were sort of the backbone of what what they either built into uh, Deng Xiaoping's four modernization program 
um, what we will also know as A63, which is a, pro a project or state-led initiative to strengthen the area high-tech that was implemented in 1986. But of course, between 1956, this grand 12-year plan, which took hundreds of scientists at the time to plan, between that and 1986, there was the Cultural Revolution, hmm. which basically uh, retarded the process by, people say, 50 years. And I think as China was recovering the 19, I think basically soon, right after Mao's uh, death, um, many in the party had sensed that they needed a new direction, also because to make up for people's disillusion. Um, and the obvious devastation of ideology of this prior decade. So they decided that science technology was going to be the new creed. That was what's going to bring the Chinese people prosperity, but also restore their faith in the party leadership. And what's, and I think the story from then is kind of a story we know and, and talk about a lot, which is the four modernization program, Chinese catching up, this idea of catching up. What is often lost in view, though, is because when we think of China catching up, we think of it doing this on its own um, in opposition to the West, right? Yeah. But actually what is not known is that even during the Cultural Revolution, there was actually academic intellect exchange between American and Chinese scientists. And I think one of the reasons this history is not really known is really because it's kind of ambiguous because was it uh, transfer intellectual property? Were people selling off secrets? Were they giving away knowledge they shouldn't have? And all of which kind of doesn't capture the spirit at the time. Hmm. Um, Americans with Chinese were actually in a kind of collaborative relationship. Americans were actually very sympathetic and curious about communist China. Chinese scientists were starving for outside knowledge. And so when you read these visitors' reports from these era, because a lot of these American delegations, they kept some written notes on their experiences, and the impression was always, first of all, unbelievable hospitality and enthusiasm from their Chinese counterparts. And they were also deeply impressed by the fact that the Chinese knew everything about their publications, mm. which is really odd at a time when Western knowledge was considered a source of spiritual pollution. Right, and it was basically crim criminal to possess any kind of Western, you know, bourgeois publications or any kind of media. The Chinese scientists had an exception, and they had access to foreign journals publishing the sciences. They read their experiments very carefully, studied um, their trends and what scientists were grappling with, and so that was actually quite significant. And there was this kind of back and forth between Chinese scientists and Americans. I mean, not a lot. Obviously, in the 1960s, it was a little difficult, but there were still some. So, Jing, is there, are we saying really that there's always been something of an ambiguity in, the, in China's tech policy in the sense that whilst the aim has been technological self-reliance, there's also been a recognition, even in the sort of the darkest days of the Cultural Revolution, that foreign expertise and foreign help was going to be needed to, to develop a, an indigenous technological sector that was, was strong enough for China's purposes. I think that's a very interesting way of putting it, to talk about the kind of ambiguity or ambivalence. Because from the Chinese perspective, there is no ambivalence and no contradiction between, let's say, being technologically behind 
and wanting self-reliance and independence on the one hand, and drawing from others' expertise and technology on the other. And I think part of this is because, you know, throughout the 20th century, this is essentially kind of an underdog mentality, mm. right? Where whatever you do, having been on the receiving end as a victim for so long, that it justifies any means to get yourself back to an equal footing with your competitors. And that kind of mentality is held on to even very strongly now. And you see even the rhetoric, I think, in the current trade war when China talks about this, they use this phrase, you know, we do not wish to fight. We're not afraid to fight. And if necessary, we will fight. So there's a sense of the, you know, they, they actually don't want a kind of open hostility. But if they should be forced into it, they're certainly not going to just, just lie down and take it. Mm. And so I think that's been at the very heart of also a way of looking at the technological transformation and catching up. That spirit of cooperation in the early days that you talked about, say, going back to the 1950s and, and 60s, when did that really turn into the sort of mutual distrust and uh, rivalry that we see today and the, the persistent allegations, many of which seem to be justified, of technological theft by China, mm-hmm. of U.S. and other technology. When did that shift really start? And and how you know, how dangerous is that? How, how long do you think that is going to persist? Well, I think the spirit of cooperation had always been between the scientists and academics, right. right? People who were actually innovating and drew on, drew, and so sort of think of themselves as far as scientific rather than just national communities. Mm. Um, I think the great antagonism, it really comes from the relations between the two states, right? And we see this, um, I think uh, one turning point is actually 9-11, where mm. you see China begin to change its rhetoric and tries to be a more global player, but also take more control of its internal affairs. Um, I think 2008 is another moment where the global financial crisis obviously put China in the limelight in a sense that its massive reserves in many ways helped the global economy to recover from that. So I think this series of, you know, series of progress that China made China feel more confident, right, made it less willing to accept the existing rhetoric, because also you have to understand during the time where they were, the, the self-reliance, it does not exclude outside help. This was specifically articulated by Deng Xiaoping right. um, as a kind of like a softening or rephrasing or redefinition of what Mao had set out very strictly, let's say, thought of the great leap forward, you know, literally making pot, melting pots and pans or doing things yourself. Um, it's kind of a softening of that attitude, mm. that creed. So I think the current antagonism is unfortunately a reflection of more state choices. And I also think partly because in the 80s and 90s, in fact, China did what it was supposed to, what it had set out to do, which was to take a lot of foreign technology, learn from them, even with Chinese computing. You know, they would buy foreign computers, but then basically add some extensions to make it processable for Chinese language, et cetera. But that had always been its approach, right, before it can actually produce its own. Now, what is interesting is that now with this rhetoric, and also because it's at the moment where China is actually strong enough and with, a, 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 I think, a mature enough industry to start, let's say, producing its own semiconducting chips, uh, so on and so forth, um, also its 
tremendous ownership. Over, I think, over 70% of world's mining of rare earth elements is actually under Chinese control. I mean, with these series of infrastructural things in place, I think it feels much more confident, and it wants to step up. And in some ways, as any power that becomes legitimate, they kind of want to shed a path of illegitimacy. And just one further question then. I mean, alongside the rise of China's tech sector and technological capacity, there's been a sort of misreading of what the effect of uh, greater technology in China might be, arguably. I mean, maybe 20 years ago, a lot of people in the West thought that the Internet would come and that would um, change the way that China is governed and the, uh, China's system and it would you know, make it all more liberal and open things up. And that's, that's really n- arguably not been the case. Why did people outside of China misread that uh, so badly? as it seems? Hmm. Well, I think there were two factors. I think one was generally goodwill, that a thought that if China became more like them, um, there would be less chance of things going wrong. But I think the other is really an overestimation of the kind of world order that has been in existence, that we've become accustomed to, which is the one that's been set and defined by the West. Right. right, its ideals, its democratic foundation. And I think that was a very important assumption that had persisted for a long time. And I should say that if you look at China's internal documents or, or anything that the leadership has said or the, the mood, the trends in cultural or politics or um, scientific, the thought was never that they would become like the West. Right. It was never about that. The self-reliance creed is that you would draw from whatever resource is necessary, take detours if you need to, but the goal was always to come back to the self. So I think that is a very important point that that I think many observers and um, policymakers in the West had missed in the past four or five decades. On the other hand, I don't want to say, you know, this is, might be a bit like, well, hindsight is always twenty twenty. So the other point that I would make is that for China, the, the miscalculation is not just China's own. We think about, you know, the Internet. The advent of the Internet was very optimistic, even yeah. in the West, right? The first Unix, you know, programmers, that small science community which had just witnessed Nixon's Watergate. So their idea was if only information were made accessible and open and transparent, this would never happen again, right? right? And that... That generation of baby boomers is actually, I think, among the most disillusioned with regard to America's political landscape at the moment. So we should also think that technology also offered uh, a prospect that was very idealistic. Jing, just one last question. I mean, are there reasons to be optimistic at all here, or do you see this technological rivalry and tension between the China and the, and the rest of the world only increasing in the next few years? I certainly hope not, but I do have to say there is a kind of difference, which is that for China, this is a long game. And as far as we can tell, the current leadership will be in power for the foreseeable future. Yep. And I think structurally, that could make a difference in the current trade war. Uh, of course, we all have to see what happens um, during the election, but I think it, it is, it's important not to underestimate how deep the resolve goes in China's history the way that we talked about today and how much it's going to be willing to hold out for the foreseeable future. Absolutely. 
thanks so much for joining us today. Thank Absolute so fascinating much. insights. And uh, we're, we'd love to speak to you again at some point in the future. But th- thanks so much. So we talked about China's rise as a technological power and the importance to China of doing so. But I want to talk now a little more about where China stands today and how much it's achieved its goals and also how other countries in Asia are responding to that. So I'm joined by two uh, people who have great perspectives on this. Julian Gewertz, who's an academy scholar at Harvard University, and the Wall Street Journal's Asia tech reporter, Newly Purnell. Julian Newly, thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure Thank to you. be here. Could we kick off with that question then, Julian? China has wanted to achieve self-reliance. It's obviously grown some of the world's biggest uh, tech companies from Huawei to Alibaba to Tencent. When you go to China, obviously, there's a, a lot of technological development that's taken place. But how do you put it in perspective, given that there is this rivalry, talk so much about the rivalry between the US and China and elsewhere in terms of technology? Where does China sort of stand in the, in the global race for technological supremacy right now? Well, I think that my way of answering that question would begin in the United States by saying that the biggest shift that we have seen in recent years has been this extraordinary shift in perceptions of Chinese technology. We have gone from a set of ideas in the United States that the investments that the Chinese Communist Party was making in military civil fusion, that the rise of Chinese private firms of the sort that you just mentioned, that all of that was supposed to not be producing innovation. It was supposed to be producing, at best, copycat uh, technologies, imitations, knockoffs. And I think that was always a misconception. Uh, We can dig deeper into why that might have been if you like. But I think we have now seen very rapidly, with all the force of shock and surprise and alarm, uh, dawning awareness in many Western countries that that is not what's happening. That, in fact, a combination of investment, theft, and innovation has produced a significant and highly competitive technology ecosystem in China. I'd add that I think what we're seeing in China is very much still a story in progress. We have not arrived yet at Mm. the end point that has been dreamt of or envisioned. Technological supremacy, the phrase that you used, is certainly not what we have seen in in, in China. And frankly, I'm not sure that, you know, other than the United States uh, at its period of of greatest uh, dominance, that, that, that that's something that will come back again. Now, there are specific areas we can drill down into more uh, where Chinese investment is leading the world in terms of the just amount of cash that's in the ecosystem or where there is research being produced in volume that uh, is, is pretty dazzling. You know, the, the, the classic example is that in recent years, China's produced over a quarter, 25, or more than 25%, of the research on AI, according to some measures. But what that actually means is a much more complicated uh, and, and, I think, nuanced story. Right. Could you just explain that a little further, how you see that as a more more nuanced situation? 
Sure. Well, so there, there are a few different problems uh, that, that I think you can kind of dig into. One is that each of these domains, whether it's biotechnology, uh, semiconductors, chips, or the catch-all of artificial intelligence, each of these domains has a variety of different actors on the Chinese side. There is no single monolithic thing called Chinese technology. Mm. So to, to pull that apart a bit, there are a range of different firms in China working in each of these areas. There are a range of different research organizations working in each of these areas. Some are clearly the domain of the state. They are, like the Chinese Academy of Sciences, directly linked to the state. Others are in a much more ambiguous territory. For instance, they are private firms that have clearly benefited from preferential treatment, including mm -hmm. preferential uh, lending from state banks to fund research, sort of national champion type government support. But the exact relationship to the Chinese party state is more ambiguous. And if that's the case, then disaggregating what is a Chinese success story in a sense of national power and what is a corporate success story is, I think, a big question for further research. And it's an area, frankly, where there's a lot of debate and disagreement. We may never have firm answers. There may, may never be a definitive uh, smoking gun on any particular question about whether a firm is linked to the state or not. But uh, when we think about the idea of Chinese technology and where it stands in relation to the world, I think disaggregating some of these areas is really important. Yeah, because I guess the assumption from outside often is that uh, everything is sort of driven top down in China. Uh, so that the likes of Huawei or whatever, they get a leg up, as you say, from uh, lots of support from the state. And yet you have tales of the likes of Alibaba, which grow from, you know, Jack Ma, this this te English teacher in Hangzhou, having this idea uh, that blossoms, you know, 20 years on or whatever into the giant that Alibaba has become today. I mean, is is that what you're talking about, that we need to be a bit more um, nuanced in the way we, we talk about uh, whether China is really a top-down tech strategy or, or a bottom-up one? Well, I think the answer is, of course, that it's, it's a bit of both. And yeah. one of the reasons why I wanted to emphasize a moment ago that this story is not over is that I think we are seeing some of these experiments that the Chinese Communist Party has devised. For instance, whether bottom-up innovation, small firms in a competitive Silicon Valley type ecosystem, whether that can happen in a long-term sustainable fashion in a one-party authoritarian system. That's an experiment that the Chinese Communist Party is running. We are seeing its results, both positive and negative, in real time. And figuring out how the United States should respond to a system where so many of the signals, the indicators will be ambiguous, meaning will not be clear-cut examples of this is top-down or, frankly, this is bottom-up, uh, is one of the really big challenges in this, in this moment of intensified competition, where I think there's a very strong case to be made that U.S. firms and U.S. investors, U.S. universities should certainly not be supporting the military applications, the extremely state forward side of the equation. Right. Um, but those private sector actors, a much more difficult question. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen also in the last year or two, some of the big uh, Chinese companies like Tencent uh, has come, have come into conflict actually with the Chinese government. So Tencent over video games and Baidu over, you know, how their search results uh, work. So there is there is tension as well. There, there, there's some echoes of, you know, the, the tension between Facebook and the US government or uh, uh, some of the big U.S. tech giants that we've seen there. So it, it's not quite as simple as saying, well, they're all part of the Chinese government. That's right. And I think that it's a really interesting point. The dilemma, of course, is, yes, these individual firms get you know, slapped down when they produce fraudulent search results or when they are participating in the alleged phenomenon of Internet addiction around China. You know, these kinds of things that become sort of social or political uh, concerns. But they also clearly serve the core and enduring interests of the Chinese Communist Party to develop China, the country that the Communist Party ruled, into a global technological power. And so, as I was saying a moment ago, you know, I think one of the big issues is that it's going to be both at once. Hmm. And we're going to be getting signal and noise on both sides. And Julian, one last question on China for now, but in terms of this ecosystem that they have in China, and I know, again, it, it's maybe different across different areas of technology, but to what extent has that ecosystem proved successful in encouraging innovation? To what extent now is China, are there areas where China is leading the world in, in technology? Um, you know, because, it, of course, we, we, again, we have this thought about China that they're always stealing technology and they're getting it from elsewhere. But how, how out of date now is that perception? Well, I think it's, it's, a, it's a story that you can think about in, in one of two ways. On the one hand, the theft has been totally extraordinary and, in a sense, has been one of the, you know, great signs of, of how China has and China's leaders have not played by some of the rules of the international system and of the economic order. So the hundreds of millions of dollars worth of U.S. technology that are stolen every year, I mean, it's a it's a really uh, dramatic story, and, and it's been written about well, and I think it's going to continue to be an area of significant focus. But at the same time, there is real innovation happening. There are mm. firms that have become competitive uh, much faster than the United States realized. And, you know, the, the classic example that is the fixation of so many people at the moment is 5G, fifth generation wireless technology, where uh, Huawei, the massive Chinese telecom firm, has what many analysts describe as the best product for the cheapest price. Now, that can't be separated from this massive flood of discounted investment, right. preferential treatment that Huawei received. But one of the reasons it's tough is that has occurred, and we are now at a moment where if you're in a third country and you're trying to, on a tight budget, figure out how you're going to build out this next-generation system, that's the, the economic decision. And, and I think we've seen the United States really struggling to push against that reality where, you know, first, you know, the, yes, there is no direct U.S. Uh, competitor there. You know, the other, uh, either South Korean or German firms that can do this, you know, sure, they're outside of the United States, but 
the U.S. government has made clear that it's much more comfortable with those firms rather than Huawei building building this, these 5G systems. But as far as I'm aware, only three countries have uh, have gone along with the hmm. U.S. request, and dozens of others have yeah. uh, have not. Absolutely. Newly, can I turn to you and just broaden this out to, to the rest of Asia? Obviously, there's a lot of focus on the rivalry in technology, say, between the China and the US. But how do you're, you're obviously speaking to us from, from Delhi. How is this seen in India and elsewhere across the region? How are they looking at China and China's tech sector? Are they looking at it as a model to be emulated or surpassed? Are there different approaches uh, to technological development um, that that we see across the region, or do we see that sort of state-backed or state-involved model working and employed elsewhere? Yeah, it's a great question, and and perhaps surprisingly, given um, India's geopolitical rivalry with China, you actually and its legacy as a pretty open, fair playing field for foreign firms. It's been really interesting in the last year or so to hear more and more people, policymakers, talking about the success that China has had in um, sheltering its own startups. Um, I think there was an element of this uh, coming up you know, before the election of Prime Minister Modi a few months back, where perhaps they were playing to a domestic base a little bit. But um, you certainly now more and more hear people talking about the, uh, you know, and it coincides with this kind of backlash against many of these big U.S. tech firms. But you hear now people talking about, um, you know, how much money Uber is spending in here. And is it fair for a huge company like Uber with all of its billions uh, to be competing against um, Ola, which is the Uber of India? Or is it fair for uh, Amazon to be spending $5 billion to grow its business in India and competing against what was then the local champion at Flipkart, which has now been bought by Walmart for $16 billion? in its biggest ever acquisition. Um, WhatsApp, Facebook's WhatsApp has 400 million users in India. It's its biggest market in the world. And now it seems like people are starting to say, and not just people at small startups who are competing with these companies, but policymakers saying China has done a good job of um, sheltering its own startups and and walling off its, its bit of the internet to allow its own tech firms to flourish. So it is quite, cons- it is quite interesting given um, there still are tensions between the two countries. Um, And from time to time, you hear uh, some concerns from people about what kind of data some of these um, social media apps, particularly from China, might be collecting. But more and more, it seems like people are talking about the success that China has had at fostering its own tech firms' developments. And in India, then, are there certain areas of technology that the country is looking to specialize in and kind of make a, a name for itself in? Or are they trying to develop technology across the board? Yeah, well, the biggest Indian startups so far are the sort of Indian equivalents of the big Western companies. So it's uh, it's e-commerce. It's um, uh, there are some uh, popular video streaming services. There are food delivery. Essentially, all of the ride hailing, all of the big big ones that you see uh, in the West. Um, there are Indian equivalents for. Um, there there is one interesting, uniquely Indian, um, massive program which is called Adhar, which means 
uh, foundation in Hindi, and it's the world's largest biometric database. So, uh, you know, India has a huge problem with people lacking um, documents, birth certificates, credit scores, or even just simple identification. And so um, Nandan Milikani, who is one of the founders of uh, Infosys, the huge Indian IT services firm, and some of his colleagues a few years ago set out to change that by creating this huge central database. And, and they've done it, and they have, uh, you know, over a billion people are in it uh, with iris scans and, and some other uh, markers. And there has been hope that uh, that could be used as a platform to to build out digital services on. And, and you know, one of the most significant tech stories in the last several years here is that um, Mukesh Ambani, who is India's richest man, yeah. rolled out this hugely disruptive um, uh, mobile carrier uh, where he, he basically gave away data for free for uh, six or nine months and um, has attracted hundreds of millions of uh, users. And these are users in rural, really rural areas who could could not afford uh, mobile data, much less even uh, a really inexpensive smartphone. So that has triggered a price war. And, and hundreds of millions of people have gotten online for the first time here in India. Um, and one of the factors in their success was that it was easy for them to sign up people uh, using Aadhaar. So it used to take weeks before to onboard people uh, because they had to check who they were and get all their details. And now with Aadhaar, they were able to do that. Um, so there is a hope that that could lead to, to additional new kinds of services. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's, it's applications of uh, technologies that are seen uh, in the West. And then also, of course, digital digital payments, which are, uh, you know, China right. is a pioneer in that field. Um, those are also uh, quite popular here in India as well. And across the region into sort of Southeast Asia, which countries are sort of most interesting to you from a tech sector point of view at the moment? Well, um, if you think about China being off limits to uh, foreign firms and India being open and being perhaps overrun by U.S. firms, Southeast Asia is really interesting because it's a battleground between both. You have uh, Alibaba and Tencent and uh, a few other Chinese firms really pouring money into startups in Southeast Asia. So a few years ago, Alibaba acquired Lazada, which is the sort of Amazon of Southeast Asia, and they have backed a bunch of other startups. Uh, Amazon is so far only in Singapore, but we actually reported last week that they have had talks with Gojek, which is an Indonesian uh, motorcycle hailing startup, to uh, perhaps invest in, in Gojek and work on some sort of partnership in Indonesia. So uh, Southeast Asia is a huge region of its own. Of course, it's highly fragmented. It's 600 million people, but those are divided uh, across many different disparate kinds of countries with different languages and customs. Indonesia is a is super uh, interesting uh, country because it's 260 million people. Geography is very difficult. It's quite spread out, but um, it, it, the, it's it's uh, mobile first, huge engagement with social media um, and smartphones there, very young population and people doing really interesting things with, um, uh, you know, e-commerce on in social apps, for example. So that's an interesting one. Singapore, um, uh, just by dint of being, you know, a, a very easy to operate place um, is where a lot of these startups are headquartered, but they're often using that as a place to, to uh, branch off into. To Indonesia or other parts of the region, uh, Vietnam is is interesting. Um, it's it's embraced um, a sort of um, a more locked down version of the internet, but you see a lot of commerce there. And then you know it's a really a disparate region. You have everything from Myanmar to Singapore to know, Malaysia. It's yeah, it's really it's really varied. Yeah, and obviously big variations across the region. But if I can ask you for a, a big generalization, I mean, are those sort of smaller, I don't know Indonesia, a big country, but smaller Asian countries, are they proving more open to foreign investment and foreign involvement than, say, China has been? 
Yes, by and large, by and large. You're starting to see more and more now talk in places like Indonesia of, just like in India, perhaps um, cutting off a bit of access to foreign players with stuff like data localization or stricter internet mediary uh, uh, liability laws. But more or less, yes, they've been quite open. Um, one of the big success stories in Southeast Asia is Grab, which is the Southeast Asian equivalent of Uber, which in fact, you might remember, uh, went head to head with Uber for many years. And then um, and then Uber retreated, and yeah. like they retreated from China. So Grab was the winner there. And they're in several countries throughout Southeast Asia. And uh, yeah, there's different e-commerce companies. Uh, mobile payments is is a promising area. But yeah, it's it, it's certainly a varied region and, and an important one. And Julian, I can if, yeah, jump in on. on the if I can jump in on the mobile payments point, which I, I think is really important. You know, this is a case where yes, China was at the forefront. Uh, Chinese firms have been leading in figuring out all sorts of new ways to use cell phones to make payments and verify those, link them to bank accounts, etc. But that was happening in a financial services sector that was strictly controlled, where Visa and MasterCard, despite repeated agreements that they would be allowed to operate in China, were being kept out. And that discrimination against foreign firms, that uh, very protected sector allowed for this innovative new form of mobile payments to develop and then to be integrated into, into platforms like WeChat. And to me, this is a really emblematic story of what the so-called China model in practice means, because this is now the kind of innovation that other countries around the world are themselves having copycat firms creating, as you've been describing. But I think it's important not to forget that it it is in part born out of a highly protected so-called innovation ecosystem in China that was able to uh, to come up with some of these very exciting solutions to problems that were in part solutions to problems created by keeping out foreign firms. Yeah, in some ways, I, it, it echoes what the industrial policies of some Asian countries back in the 1960s, the sort of protectionist approach in the initial stages, at least, that helps to develop national champions. Newly, sorry, I, I interrupted. I think you were going to jump in there oh, as well. I was, I was just going to, I was just going to say two, two brief things. First, um, we mentioned 5G before, and that's in, that's a, India is a country that's, um, that's on the fence, um, where you have operators saying, well, okay, yeah, we, we understand where the U.S. is coming from, but this equipment is really good and it's cheap. Uh, and, you know, we don't want to pay extra for what we, we think is a political issue and not a, not a security issue. Um, so that, that's an interesting one. The U.S. has been, you know, trying um, hard here as it has in other places to get, to get India to commit not to use Huawei. And so far they've been unsuccessful. The other thing I was going to say is um, on, uh, on, on Chinese um, Internet companies expanding uh, abroad, we've seen, we've seen them trying to do that. And they have actually had success here in India in um, social media. So TikTok, which is a ByteDance, of course, a ByteDance app, which is popular in other places like the U.S., has really taken India by storm. I was just in central Delhi today near our office, and there was this 
crew of young, uh, they will be the sort of like YouTubers, but, but they're TikTokers, you know, making videos and dancing and stuff. And it's a common sight here. Um, and they have really poured a lot of money into marketing, into um, uh, really getting the app to expand here. And there's some other ones like uh, one from Bigo, which is like a live streaming app. Um, in fact, ByteDance even launched one called Hello, which is in Hindi only. It's not even in English. It's in Hindi and other local languages. Um, so they seem to have had a lot of success, at least so far, in, in catering to some of the more rural users in India, whereas a lot of the global or the U.S. firms have focused much more on the kind of urban elites. Um, so, so ByteDance and, and Bigo seem to be uh, having success, success going after less less advantaged users in the countryside. What yeah, about- and if I can build yeah. on that, I mean, if I can build on that, I think this shift to, to mobile video is really important, not just in these firms overseas expansion. You know, as you say, TikTok, hugely popular in India, also now hugely popular in the United States, particularly among younger people. But it's important to remember that in China itself, the tech boom, the internet boom has been distributed unevenly throughout the country. And the shift to video and audio messaging and to these platforms that allow for for sharing of short-form video has also allowed more rural Chinese people to participate in some of these systems and even economies that, whether because of lower levels of literacy or lower levels of comfort with text-based online platforms, wasn't happening in the same way uh, 15, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Can I ask both of you then about the some some of the darker side here of the China tech model, though. Uh, obviously, we read a lot about how tech power and so on is being used internally in China. There's obviously the social credit system where people are, uh, are monitored quite closely and you're monitored by technology and that can make your daily life harder. There's obviously the controversy about what's going on in Xinjiang as well. To what extent is that spread to other countries in Asia? To what extent are other countries in Asia looking at China and thinking, on the one hand, this is a good way for us to up our own surveillance of, of what goes on inside the country? and Or to what extent, on the other hand, are people looking at it and going, we don't want that kind of thing here, and there's pushback from electorates against that kind of surveillance and and the sort of Orwellian all-seeing eye, if I can put it at that extreme? Well, I can go first. Just in India, there were a lot of concerns over that Adhar biometric database issue that I mentioned. You know, China has used some biometric details. There were there were concerns that, you know, what if the database gets hacked and your irises are, are you know, iris scans are accessed. But other than that, um, there, there hasn't been too much of a, you know, any kind of coordinated, um, you know, surveillance systems that uh, that people have raised objections about um, here in India. Of course, as a democracy, uh, you know, with a pretty um, robust media, there are things are are floated from time to time that people worry about, but there hasn't been any, any suggestion of any of the kind of widespread surveillance that we've seen in China. Um, and then you go, and then you can kind of go region by region. In Southeast Asia, some governments filter content for various reasons, but nothing that we've really seen on the scale of China. And I do think, though, with, you know, it dovetails with the the backlash against, you you know, U.S. tech firms and growing realizations of the amount of data that people collect. Um, So it's an issue I'm watching closely, especially as we start to see policymakers talk about the advantages of doing things the Chinese way. Julian, any thoughts on the way that uh, the China surveillance model is spreading or not? Yes. So I think first, it's important to just give attention to what 
is happening in Xinjiang and what it means. And I would just say there are two things. First, this is clearly a case where new technologies are allowing the Chinese model of authoritarianism, which has been extraordinarily repressive around the country and over the past several years, has intensified to a, a, an unspeakable level for Uyghur people and Muslims in Western China and Xinjiang. The fact that technology can make this system of repression, surveillance, and control work more efficiently, that it can make it easier for the Chinese Communist Party and its state security apparatus, is a really significant development beyond China as well, because it shows that the fears, the dystopian fears that have long been voiced about digital technologies, when combined with repressive political systems, can create uh, a degree of control over people's daily lives and a degree of pervasive fear and insecurity that is just, uh, in, in my view, in my view, unacceptable. Now, to go back to one of the points that was that was just being made, the big question is, it may be unacceptable in my view, it may be unacceptable in many of our views, but in democratic societies, the question is going to be figuring out how the line gets drawn and yeah. how to make people understand what the stakes really are. And so, you know, there's I, I, I don't love the analogy to the, you know, tech backlash in the U.S. because I think the comparisons between what the kind of data and the kind of uses of data at the moment that a big U.S. tech firm has, as opposed to what the Xinjiang region government can do with that data, you know, obviously they're not comparable, and I don't think people are trying to suggest that they are. But I do think that there's a really important dimension to the Xinjiang question, which is these technologies and these systems are clearly designed for export first around mm. China, mm. and second, potentially internationally. We have seen, and uh, the, the scholar Darren Byler has written about Chinese firms that are going to military and other uh, sort of, quote-unquote, public security type of international conventions and showing some of the systems that they've developed. And of course, those systems will be appealing to authoritarian leaders especially ones in cash-rich countries right. who, can, uh, who can afford them. And I think it's, a, it's at the very cutting edge of what policymakers have to think about, as well as what publics have to decide they're comfortable with, because we will, I think, see some aspects of these systems be emulated around Asia and around the world. And figuring out what our society is comfortable with and, and, and how to inform the public uh, I think it's a, it's a huge and unsolved challenge. Yeah, one of the defining questions of the age, I'm sure. Julian Newley, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you so much for those insights. Fascinating stuff and uh, uh, great to have you on. Thanks, thanks again. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, suggestions, or even criticisms, do get in touch with us. Our email address is asiamatterspod at gmail.com. Thanks once again for listening. Bye.